Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So let's start with uh, Train Bloodstock. Yeah. Because that was where we first properly met. Obviously, the morning we, after. The, well, it was very much still the morning, the night of. Yeah. For me. <laughs> I, I woke up in this kind of just disgusting tent and I was like, right, I'm getting out. Because I only went to see Twisted Sister. Right. The rest of the bill was a bit too metal. It was very me. heavy. It was very heavy, it was wasn't very it? very heavy. But I obviously did the Q&A with Dee and your dad in London, I think two days prior. Yeah. I'd seen you at that. And I was thinking back to it because when I was like a young kid, I was, you might not believe it, but very, very, very shy. What? Right? What? And then I got to the age of about 12 and I was like, you know what? Life's too short. And so that was one of those moments where I saw you. I was like, that's definitely Jay's daughter because Steve had said at the show, I think like, oh, his daughter's here tonight. Yeah. Because uh, I think they were saying something awful about something that my dad had done with a groupie or something like that. Probably. yeah, it's nothing that I hadn't heard before, but I don't need to have it repeated. How do you feel about regurgitating some of that info? I'm just joking. So I don't, I've blocked it out of my memory, so you wouldn't get any of it out of me. Deep, deep it's down there. so deep. I'd need many therapy sessions to get through that. Well, the documentary is incredible, and I didn't realize until seeing it, like how long the band had been around before yeah. they finally made it. Um, and your dad obviously doesn't drink, does he? Is he never drunk? He's not. He was never really a drinker. I think um, as far as he's told me, and I trust him on this because he's always been very honest with me about his vices. Right. Um, he reacts very poorly to beer. Um, and it's really only been like more recently. He's gotten very into his wines. He, he's like some Malbec. Um, he... 
I've seen him have cocktails on occasion, which is hilarious because... Does it go straight to his head? Oh my God, it's so funny. <laughs> um, but yeah, he his main thing was back in the 60s, and he won't mind me saying this because he's talked a lot about it. He was very, very into drugs and psychedelics, and he was a dealer. Oh, really? Yeah. So he was a proper um, hippie, right? He was a proper hippie. He... Um, had like the super long hair and uh, he was very like against the man and ran like an anti-Vietnam super super anti-Vietnam to the point where like he got his draft card pulled and he went down to the draft office and so legend has it my grandmother got him to swallow a cotton ball so that when they did an x-ray something would show up funny in his stomach and they would kind of disregard him um he didn't wear his glasses so that he'd fail the vision test which was just i mean he's i don't understand how because his vision is so bad i don't know how he got himself down there if he wasn't wearing his <laughs> like my vision is horrible now i have an eye disease which maybe we'll come back to later yeah, yeah, but yeah. my vision is absolutely dreadful and just last year it, it actually got worse than my dad's but I remember as a kid putting my dad's glasses on and like not being able to see anything with his glass on. That's how strong his prescription was. So I don't understand how he got himself all the way down. Like Whitehall, which is where the draft was, was way downtown. I don't know how he got himself down there if he wasn't wearing his glasses. So I'm, I question that part of the story. But anyway, didn't wear his glasses, swallowed a cotton ball. That and cotton ball trick's amazing. What a genius move. I know, but the reason why they ultimately disregarded him for service was because he had a heart murmur. They got him to do jumping jacks. I don't think he knew at the time, but they got him to do jumping jacks. They listened to his heart and they said, oh, you have a heart murmur. You're out. And then... He's like, I'm, again, I'm happy that I'm out, but right, this like, thing's worrying. I went, yeah, this thing is worrying, but also like I went to all this trouble and you're telling me I didn't even need to... I could have worn my glasses. Anyway, so legend has it. Again, the accuracy of this, I don't know. Is your dad prone to mythologize? And, yep. Yeah, yeah, yep. yeah. And he'll admit it too. He'll admit it. <laughs> well, that's he'll say, a good story. Because he'll say it makes a better story. But anyway, as he tells it, he was on his way out of the draft office. He had his hand on the door. And then an announcement came over the Tannoy for him to come back and meet with the head of the draft or whatever. Yeah, yeah, a, yeah. A, a very official guy. The colonel. Yeah. <laughs> and my dad had his long hair and like looked like a super deadbeat and was like real into his LSD and everything. And he was like, oh, fuck, I've been caught. And he like turns around and goes back to this guy's office. And this guy was like... I saw you out in the waiting area and I just want you to know you're never going to make anything of yourself. And like, basically it was Twisted Sister music video. It was like the Mark Metcalf character in a Twisted music video. What are you going to do with your life? And all that kind of shit. And my dad apparently said, I'm going to be a rock star. And like mic drop moment, walked out of the office. Now, do you think that moment defined a lot of his life then? Do you think he really kind of just if it's true, if it's true, <laughs> then yeah. Um, but he he was kind of like dead set on that mission. I'm gonna show he you. He had been, yeah, like he had been, I think, for a long time at that point. But anyway, yes, my father was a fully paid up hippie, and um, to the point where, so right before I started high school, which is not quite secondary school here, a little bit older, I was 14. Right. 
he took me out for lunch and he sat me down. And this is why I say he's always been very honest and upfront with me about all of his vices. He said to me, I'm going to tell you every messed up thing I've ever done. And I'm doing this for two reasons. One, because I never want you to hear it from any, anybody else. And two... Is this when the internet's becoming a thing as well? Is he worried you're going to like read maybe, stuff online? Or? Maybe, maybe it was because he's got a lot of loudmouth friends and he didn't <laughs> want me to like get it twisted from anybody else's perspective. I don't know. But he said, I don't want you to hear from anybody else and two because i know that you're going to high school and you're gonna fuck up but just don't fuck up as badly as i did he so like did he, 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 did he see himself as somebody who made more mistakes than you would have liked yeah he definitely um like he he did things that he regretted but his his saving grace was that he recognized when he went too far and he was able to pull himself back and from that point which i think was really when he I could totally be wrong and he's gonna like really correct he's gonna listen back to me on this he's gonna listen he's gonna listen back to this and I'm gonna get a text essay hey dad sorry if I get all this wrong he's I'm gonna get a text essay from him on everything that I got wrong but I think it was around 1972 when he joined what would become Twisted Sister which was at the time called Silver Star um that he pulled himself out of that and went teetotal and just said, I'm done with that. Like, I want to be a superstar and I'm not going to get there if I'm fucking around. Um, so he made mistakes. He recognized that he made those mistakes and he made it very clear to me that... Um, have fun, I, but don't have, have too fun, much fun. Have fun, but just don't like... I was able to stop myself from fucking up even more, but like, I want to stop you before you even get to that point. Um, which I really appreciated. Yeah. It, I mean, that's a, really rare to have that because most teenagers as they're going into that part of their life where experimentation is almost certainly on the cards. Most parents just go, don't do this. Don't right, do that. And right. they come down with fire and brimstone yeah. and hardcore discipline. Yeah. And, uh, and that's a better way of approaching it. I absolutely. Think. And I mean, look, I, dabbled in stuff and messed up and i was in does your dad know the extent of your misdemeanors as well so it's a it's a two-way street absolutely i've always been honest with him about it um with both of my parents um but i was able actually i i hit that line in the sand by the following year, <laughs> I was only 15 and I recognized that, you know, dad said, this is where that line is and I'm getting a little bit too close to it for comfort. I've got to pull myself back, which is actually how I ended up living over here. Okay. So you um, lived in New York, was it yes, until you were 15? Until I was 15 years old. and Just I with your dad? Of, um, with both of my parents. Right. They separated when I was eight, but okay. they only lived four blocks away from each other. So I kind of like went between their apartments. Um, but at that point I was like... I've gone too far. Um, I went to a very, very, very liberal high school with some um, very interesting characters. Go on, elaborate. Um, uh, was it an all-girls school? Or it mixed? was not an all-girls school. It was mixed. It was a state school. But in New York, we have this system called magnet schools um, where they're uh, they're state schools but they're kind of run like private schools insofar as they're allowed to like set their own agendas and their own curriculums and their own missions and the one that i went to is called bart high school early college and um 
the concept was that the first two years, essentially the equivalent of your GCSE years, was um, high school. And then your second two years, your A-level, was the start of university and that you would graduate with an associate's degree, which was is one below a bachelor's in the United States. So um, very academically intense environment and attracted a lot of very creatively minded people. Um, but when you get that many creatively minded kids with hormones exploding, with hormones exploding and access to narcotics as we had an abundance of in Manhattan, uh, shit gets fucked up pretty fast. And I was... A lot of ticking time bombs walking around. I mean, I have friends that I made there who are no longer with us. Really? Yeah. Um, and uh, um, guys that I went out with who are no longer with us. Um, and I had to, I had to recognize that that was happening. Like, I think my epiphany moment was when I was on a rooftop with an ex-boyfriend of mine and his best friend and they were tripping on acid and my job was literally to be there to stop them from jumping off the roof. You were sober? Yeah. And my job was to be there to stop them from jumping off the roof. And this guy that I had been going out with, he had been admitted to hospital a couple of weeks earlier, coughing up blood, uh, which it turns out was caused by a hole that had been burned into his stomach by him doing too much cocaine. Into his stomach? Yeah. And he was 17. So it was just... <laughs> it's like the movie, kids. Yeah. I got to that point where I was like... Is New I... York a gnarly place to grow up then? Yeah. I don't want to raise my children there. I don't. I, I loved growing up there, but I'm, I was left a little scarred and a little scared of it. Um, and then my mother was offered a job here in London. She's originally from here. She's from Basildon, Essex. My stepdad was over here already. So it was looking like an attractive prospect to her. And I essentially begged her to take it so that I could come over here because I needed to remove myself from the situation um, because of that talk that I had had with my dad because he set that line down and I saw that I was getting way too close to it. Was your dad sad to see you go? Yeah, it was really painful. Yeah, I'll bet. Um, and uh were you equally close to both parents after they separated or were I, you more close I, to one what it was difficult the con the um circumstances surrounding their separation especially as an eight-year-old you don't really understand my parents never fought in front of me i didn't get why they got divorced um so i played the blame game it must have been somebody's fault i'd never actually thought i was never one of those kids where i thought it was my fault but it must have been somebody's. So I was, I spent a lot of time pointing fingers and um, at times resenting both of them in, in turn. But I was very close to both of them um, in different ways at this, uh, not at the same time, but shortly after the separation was when Twisted got back together and my dad started touring again. So your whole life kind of changes overnight, totally right? flipped. Yeah. My parents split up and all of a sudden my dad's a rock star again. So was he not touring at all for not the first, at all. For eight, the first nine years of your eight, life? Eight, nine years of my life, Twisted was not in my sphere of consciousness. I didn't actually really understand what it was, what it meant. Um, my dad had tried to explain it to me on a couple of occasions, but it was just very lightly touched upon. Um, and uh, yeah, 
I, it, I didn't understand how big this was about to get. Mm. Well, nor would anyone, I think, of that right. age. Yeah, I, it was just kind of. Whew. So yeah, I kind. So was was he just? I mean, was he managing? What was it? What was your dad doing for work at that so point? So my dad was. Or was he just living off the twisted he, bank no, and loving he, life? Absolutely not. Uh, <laughs> the twisted bank had really dried up at that stage. Okay. He was um, managing uh, artists. He had a management company called Rebellion Entertainment with his partner, Sean, that was run out of our apartment. Um, And they had been at that for like a good few years when Twisted started up again, I want to say. And then before that, he had managed um, Seven Dust, um, which was a, how would you characterize them? Would you say thrash? metal new metal uh, yeah i guess a yeah. kind of almost post new metal yeah, yeah 90s um so in my when i was very little i was going to seven dust gigs with my dad i've seen this in pictures <laughs> here i wish this was a video there podcast are some for this pictures you dress like a ballerina the best picture <laughs> of me at a seven dust gig is nowhere to be found but matt i swear to you it exists i promise it exists i don't know where it is but it was like my, I want to say it was my third birthday. Seven Dust were on tour with Limp Biscuit, Right. And uh, it was my, they were playing a show on my birthday. My birthday is November 14th. They were playing Good a show on my, my birthday. Mom's. There you go. It's a good day. Scorpio, right? Yeah. Um, they were playing a show on my birthday and my dad um, brought me to the show and uh, he set up a little birthday party for me backstage in their dressing room cake and all cake and all and he made the members of seven dust wear teletubby party hats (laughs) (laughs) and there is photographic evidence of this i swear to god and actually i'm pretty sure a couple of the guys in limp biscuit too i'm pretty fairly certain i swear to you there's a picture of this somewhere i just don't know where it is i saw it not that long ago in my dad's apartment i was like oh fuck i need this i gotta keep this somewhere and then um my dad's apartment just got renovated they packed everything up they put it in storage for like six months and so all this stuff has now disappeared into the ether i'm gonna have to trawl rummage through through boxes for days and find it he's got like three storage units full of shit now and i like i'm gonna have to rummage through it because it's just it's worth it yeah that sounds like gold it's so good and you remember that then because i I remember that almost zero memories of anything before Eight or nine, really. My early memories are terrible. Yeah, I have a few early memories. But I guess memories. if you're having quite vivid experiences, like that's quite yeah. a hyper yeah, scenario, I re- isn't I it? I remember that. I remember um, I, I was a very pedantic child, um, which has translated to me as an adult, where um, I needed to make sure that everyone was pronouncing Limp Bizkit properly because people were saying Limp biscuit, and I remember that really annoying me. <laughs> you got to pronounce I, the Z, right? Yeah, you have to pronounce it. So I'm like toddling around backstage being like, it's Limp biscuit." Incredible. Um, I'm sure yeah. much to the band's enjoyment. I don't know. I don't, <laughs> I'm sure they were all like, why the fuck is a toddler back here? <laughs> um, this is not a child-friendly environment. Someone yeah, get her out. I mean, Limp biscuit as well probably at that time were you know they had a very 
rough and ready crowd my and their mother, shows were famous for getting out of hand and my mother also just, and just reminded me on the phone that that tour the centerpiece of their stage set was, was the a toilet, giant was it? toilet it was that one yeah when he came out of the giant kamal yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah so uh that was the environment in which i grew up so That's nothing right. was so, ever really alien right, to you, I imagine. Right, yeah. So like, no wonder I ended up on a rooftop stopping my boyfriend from jumping off when he was tripping on acid when I was 15 years old. Like, where the fuck else was I going to be after all that? Um, yeah, so... So, and then, so when Twisted reformed, yeah. and then your dad's off on the road again, Yeah, are you then just with your mum and sort of not seeing that much of your dad? So, what, what, what's the change? What's so the Twisted only ever toured in the summers. They never wanted to do arenas or or like smaller venues. They just wanted to do festival tours. I'm not entirely sure of the reasoning for that, but it worked for them. Um, so, Well, they're the ultimate festival band, really, aren't yeah. they? Yeah. So during the school year, my dad was there, which was... Um, really important for me because um so when i was born my dad was working at a hi-fi store on the upper east side of manhattan called lyric hi-fi so twisted had broken up and uh he was just kind of doing that for work um and then was he someone who was recognizable around town like no he cut his hair he just i mean if you look so at he those could just pictures, blend in and he looked like a Lived normal. Life he a normal looked like dude. kind of a normal dad, you know. He used to wear baseball caps, and yeah. Well, I think when I was born, he still had a mullet. It, and then it went pretty soon after. Um, there are some pictures of me in the hospital of him holding me with, and he had long hair. Um, but yeah, then he cut it, and he just started looking like a normal dad. Worked at this place, Lyric Hi-Fi. My older cousin Becca assumed the role of my nanny. My mother was. Um, what did your mom do for a job? So my mother at the time was the PA for a long time, was a PA to Marty Bandier, who at the time was um, head of EMI Music Publishing. And then when I was a little bit older, moved over to Sony Music Publishing. Then um, she got promoted to an executive position at Sony and then worked her way up from there. So um, she was very much in the industry as well. She was very much in the industry. Um, so she had a very, very intense full-time job because when you're a PA to somebody like that, you're not just organizing meetings. I mean, she put together his son's bar mitzvah. Yeah, like she you're had doing to be, life day to day. She had to be on call like 24-7. So Incredibly draining. I yeah. Imagine. So um, and in America, maternity leave isn't that big of a thing. I think she might have had three weeks. Um, and then she was straight back into it. My dad was working at Lyric and then my cousin Becca became my nanny. Um, and then she like got bit by the travel bug big, big time when I was one and a bit. She went off to Brazil and then my dad left Lyric essentially. I, I think he left Lyric entirely. He's going to correct me on this again um, <laughs> to become my my carer. And he he was a stay at home dad and he just looked after me and. Um, and uh, it, it was very much like we were we were super close. I mean, in those in so many of those pictures, he's carrying me. I clung to him like a sloth yeah, for the yeah, vast yeah. majority of my childhood. Um, and then when I started school, um, I went to nursery. When I was in nursery, was the first time that I met D. Snyder. <laughs> Tell me about that. So, Does that stand out as a vivid memory? I remember it. <laughs> um, I remember thinking it was really weird. So 
this was apparent in in twisted history this was actually apparently a really big day so did they completely separate when the band broke up? Yes, and they didn't talk. Zero contact. Zero contact. My dad Did still, it end badly with him or was it, it just... It did between him and Dee. Um, my dad still was in contact with um, my uncle Marky, who you may know as Mark Mendoza, who's yep. the bass player. And he was always like present in my life, um, but had not spoken with Dee. And then I'm not entirely sure how they made contact, but D asked, I think somehow they arranged a face-to-face while I was at nursery one day and they ended up talking for a very long time. And my dad said at a point, you know, I, I'm sorry to cut this short. I have to go pick my kid up from preschool. And D was like, oh, I'll come with you. And so D Snyder collected me from nursery when I was like two, three. And, um, yeah, I, my dad, like I said, was looking like a normal dad at that time. <laughs> D has always <laughs> looked like D. Yeah. And he's I, a full-time rock star, isn't he? Full-time, just full-time. He is full-time D. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, there is no way of disguising that. I mean, the hair has always been there. You know, he wears sunglasses everywhere he goes, regardless of how overcast it may or may not be or indoors. Um, He turns up at my school. It was called the studio school. And there's all of us little tiny children's. And he comes through the door with my dad. And I just remember, I mean, to me, he looked like some kind of terrifying superhero villain type person. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, the head of my nursery was really into this woman really into um her harley motorcycles and really into her hair metal and she totally fangirled over him i kind of remember that but i remember not understanding why this man was a big deal my dad had not told me anything about twisted sister at this time because i was a toddler like what the fuck was i gonna do with that information like okay (laughs) um they took me home and then they con- they continued to have their conversation. And after D left... So this was a conversation that would have gone on for hours and hours and hours. Hours and hours and hours in which they reconciled pretty much um, and decided to um, put a lot of the past behind them, which is why it was such a... It ended up being quite a big day in their timeline. Um, little did I fucking know. I was like in my room. Yeah, like when Teletubbies on, yeah. Yeah. I'm like, uh, <laughs> dad, put the TV on for me. Like... Come on. Um, That's what I love about because so many people don't recognize that all these people, whether they're huge actors or musicians or whatever, they have day-to-day lives as well as being this performer. Yeah. And you have to balance this crazy show side of things yeah. with the the home rooted so mundane I, day. Not well mundane, but just yeah. I mean the day-to-day. I always say that my dad has kind of a split personality my dad is john jj is a different person the person that you see on stage not that he's not my dad he's very much still my dad but like my but john the guy who just took care of his kid for like eight years was a class parent every year when i was in primary school came on every single class trip um, like different person altogether. And, uh, at that time, 
for a couple of years had only been living that life. And so I think, yeah, Dee came along and they had this big conversation. They, I think, got a lot out, got a lot off their chests. And uh, anyway, Dee left and my dad proceeded to show me my first ever Twisted Sister music video. Which one did he show you? Be Cruel to Your School. <laughs> yes. Which is very graphic, mm-hmm. <laughs> which my mother was not happy about. Um, and again, legend has it, and I can't remember this. I remember watching the video. I can't remember this conversation, but he swears that he put the video on for me and I watched it in silence. And afterwards he said, well, sweetie, what do you think? And I said, you look stupid, daddy. And he said, well, that puts you through preschool. And I said, I hate school, daddy. Apparently that's what happened. These kids are so ungrateful. I know. I know. Uh, So again, whether or not that's my dad embellishing history, I don't know. I was never super keen on school. I can imagine myself saying that, but equally, eh. Was there yeah. ever any element where you were enticed and excited and impressed by this thing, this other life? Or was it from the moment you were aware of it and introduced to it, was it kind of a problematic, what's this separation? Of- Absolutely not, no. Um, I... Again, I didn't fully understand it until I was a lot older. Um, when Twisted first re- so okay, so first off, they played a couple of shows before they first they before they actually got back together. And is they that with all the sort of classic lineup guys? Yes, yeah. all five of them. They played two shows. The first one, I think I was like six or seven, and they played at a surprise party for Jason Flom, who um, was the guy that signed them at Atlantic or pushed to get them signed. Um, And they played with the Blue Man Group, which, you know, for anyone... For anyone who doesn't know what the Blue Man Group is, they're like mimes that splatter blue paint everywhere. It was very strange. Um, So I was like six or seven, and I was there. Um, So... Uh, I'm I'm not entirely sure like how they set that up. I think Jason knew that they were all there, but they'd sworn they were never going to play together again. Then all of a sudden they like popped up and. Um, so was that your first time? That seeing was your my dad first time seeing them perform. Yes, the second time was um, after 9/11. Um, Can we talk about that after. real quick? After, uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, how old were you when that happened? Um, I was. Right. So super, super young. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, that changed the world forever, didn't it? Yeah. And the world we're now in is a result of that. Yeah. I don't think there would be Trump without that and then the series of events that followed. Yeah. Do you recall the impact that it had on that city at that time as a a young kid? I do. Or what is your... (laughs) It was... um, Recollection of the the impact of that. So, hold up. I'm also just trying to make sure that I got that age right. I don't think I did. I'm so tired. I'm like not doing the math properly. Anyway, yeah, I was... But I was a kid. I was in primary school. You're less than 10. I was less than 10. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Uh, So we're... I was in school that day. Um, It was the beginning of the school year, September. Um, And uh, I remember being in my classroom and there was a phone call up to my classroom and um, my like assistant teacher was told to bring me downstairs and just just me. Um, 
because my dad was there and like school had been going for literally half an hour like not even super early in the day so um my first thought was actually um i started getting really scared and upset because at the time i was getting a lot of blood tests done um because of my eye condition which i had been diagnosed with a few years previous um and uh i had a massive fear of blood tests and it was always a pattern that like my dad would come pick me up for them from school in the middle of the day and um he would he knew that i was scared of them so he'd try to kind of like ambush me and not like tell me that it was happening so i wouldn't like be spending the entire day being an anxious mess i like had really bad anxiety as a child um so uh, i I'm like walking down the stairs, fucking bricking it that I'm going to another blood test. And I get down and my dad's talking to the school principal and I'm like, um, what I do? (laughs) Uh, and he saw me and he cut off his conversation and he just like, uh, he said, there's a cab waiting outside, get in the cab, get in the cab. And, um, got in the taxi and the taxi started driving us home. So the place that I was getting my blood work done was a, f- a few blocks north of my school. So it was like, well, if I was going to get a blood test, we wouldn't be in the cab right now. Is your dad in the cab with you? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so we start driving back towards my place. So I'm like, oh, phew, okay, not getting a blood test. My dad told the cab driver the second we got in the taxi to turn the radio off. Um, I just remember how dead quiet the city was like that was that's my overwhelming memory of being in that taxi there was nobody on the street so i'm like okay this is really weird what's going on um pull up to my building and my dad said something to our doorman louie like have you heard anything else and i I think louie said something like oh um it's just come down or something like that so it must have been the first tower um and we got upstairs my mother hadn't left for work yet and she ran to me at the door, bawling her eyes out and grabbed me and hugged me. And I just remember we had a TV in our living room. And I remember seeing over her shoulder footage on the news of a plane flying into the World Trade Center. Um, and then they put me in my room and blocked the news channels on my TV. And um, and I just like watched cartoons for a while. A couple hours later, my best friend Caitlin turned up because um, her mother uh, worked in a nursery, so she couldn't leave because she had to wait for all her kids to be picked up. Her dad was a driver for um, a bunch of guys that worked in the financial district, so he was trying to get his clients out of there. So my dad went, I believe my dad went to pick her up from school. So she came over and we just sat in my room for like hours, not knowing what the hell was going on. Um and we, I remember, had this cunning plan. We covered ourselves in my duvet and attempted to sneak out of my room and go into the living room so we could Genius. watch it. Yeah, like no one would notice two children under a fucking duvet <laughs> going to watch the news. Yeah, just like creeping around like we're so sly. Um, didn't work. Uh, yeah, and then I think we really, um, so school was shut down for three days. And I think the day after my parents attempted to kind of explain it to me. And then when we got back to school, um, another teacher who taught another class in my year group, her fiance had 
was a first responder who was hit by falling debris and died. Um, and so her, they were trying to get a cover teacher for her class, but for the time being, they had to kind of split her class and just put a few kids each into all the other classes. Um, and I just remember we had, we all sat in a circle and our teacher attempted to facilitate a discussion on what had happened, what had happened with a bunch of kids. Um, and, uh, yeah, I tried, like tried to help us like process our feelings about it. Um, cause that's the stuff that, you know, you don't really take into consideration as, you know, a, an outsider that obviously saw all those events take place, but yeah. to think about how parents dealt with it and protecting their children. And then, as you say, trying to feed the information yeah. to them in a way that they can actually. Yeah. And, and I, it. and I remember her, her name was Michelle. She's a great teacher. Hi, Michelle, if you ever listen to this. Hi. Um, yeah, I remember her attempting to help us process it and um, gently explain that. Um, I mean, like we were children, mm, yeah, there, yeah. you know, we had never dealt with a concept that there would be people out there that because of where we lived, um, the the values of our country well, there was really yeah. no precedent for that event, was there? No. For anyone. Like, it was no. just such a... But, uh, yeah, we we had to try to essentially come to terms with the idea that there, there were people out there that just because of where we lived wanted us dead. Mm-hmm. Um, and this isn't like an individual. This is on a mass scale. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, things changed. You're forced to grow up in a, like, whole new way real quick. Um, I... My mother wouldn't let me ride the subway um, because there was a threat of anthrax poisoning on the subway for a long time. Um, My dad and I used to like to um, cycle down the bike path on um, Riverside all the way down the length of Manhattan and would stop it where the World Trade Center was. Um, And, uh, you know, couldn't do that because it's like... I mean, it was a mass grave site. I mean, they were digging bodies out for weeks. And I mean, you know, there was no one knew what kind of chemical pollutants were in the air, how much asbestos was going around. Like it was, but the main memory I have was how the city pulled together Mm -hmm. to, um, to help each other and be there for each other. Um, And I think that's what, most of most of the people who I know every year, you know, on Facebook, on the anniversary, people reminisce. And um, the theme of many of the posts that I read every year is uh, how grateful everybody is that the city pulled together. New York is stereotyped as being a really cold place full of a lot of people that don't give a shit about each other. And most of the time that's kind of true. <laughs> a lot of tough characters around. Yeah. I mean, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna deny it, but, um, they, everyone really pulled together and showed the best of their humanity in that moment. Um, people were, there's a convention center downtown called the Javits center, um, which, was also the site of um, Hillary Clinton's would have been victory party in 2016. Um, 
And uh, that became an emergency response center. Um, they set up blood banks there and um, were doing mass blood drives down there for weeks. And like every adult in the city came down to donate. Um, I've read stories of uh, people who worked in the area going across the Brooklyn Bridge. So New York, New York State, well, Manhattan is connected to mainland United States by 17 bridges and tunnels. And in the event of a massive uh, terrorist attack or anything remotely like that, all those bridges and tunnels systematically shut down. Um, And so it becomes increasingly difficult minute by minute after any kind of attack to get out of Manhattan. So um, people were walking across all the bridges, walking through all the tunnels to get themselves out of there. And I've read stories of people who walked across the Brooklyn, Brooklyn Bridge, not because they had anywhere to go in Brooklyn, just to get the hell out of Manhattan and had people on the other side in an area called Dumbo opening up their doors and welcoming them into their homes for as long as they needed. Um, New Yorkers showed up for each other in those days and weeks and months afterwards in a big way. And... Uh, Another way in which New Yorkers did that was um, really how Twisted ended up playing their first real proper show um, since they had broken up, which was um, a benefit gig for the Widows and Orphans Fund, which was put together by a local metal DJ called Eddie Trunk, who's yeah, pretty well yeah, known, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and had a bunch of massive metal bands on the uh, on the bill. Including, and I'm not entirely sure this was like totally tasteful or well thought through at the time, but Anthrax was on right, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Maybe a questionable booking. Yeah, yeah, you know, not yeah. that they're not great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just a little bit touchy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, anyway, so they played. Uh, but like Twisted Sister, such a quintessentially New York band. Yeah, absolutely, and that was the idea. So yeah. it was called. It was called New York Steel. And it was like the best of the tri-state area, basically, was the concept of it. And Eddie asked Twisted to get back together. And in that event, they all said, absolutely, let's do it. So that was the first time that I really saw them play. Um, and That must have been a very special gig. It was. I was up in like the kind of VIP area. I mean, like, again, I was a kid. Um, and yeah, it was... It was overwhelming. It was a crazy thing to watch. It was, uh, yeah, I think it was maybe a couple of days after my birthday. It was definitely in November. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, it was, it was intense. It, everyone played with a lot of emotion that night. And, um, it was the first time that I had seen all the guys together. I think by that point I had met each of them in turn. I'm pretty sure. Um, but I had never seen them. Well, rather besides at Jason Flom's party, I hadn't seen them all together. I certainly hadn't seen them play a full set at Jason's party. I think they only played, we're not going to take it. And I want to rock maybe one other song. Um, but they played a full set that night and, yeah, it was amazing. I just remember the next day, it was like the first time that I'd really properly been out in an audience at a metal show. Cause when I was at seven dust gigs, I was always backstage. 
um, I didn't have any kind of like earplugs or any of those like yeah, this big is before head- these days. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I remember showing up at school the next day talking like a chipmunk because you know when your hearing's busted. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> I don't know whether my teacher might have had a word with my parents about that or not, but uh, <laughs> yeah, like hey, maybe let's like protect your kids' ears next time. That's um, only metal. It's yeah, not gonna hurt. Us. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, so that was that was the first proper show that I saw them play. That's and, incredible. Yeah. And then a couple years later, they got back together for a tour for the USO in Korea. Another very unusual Yeah, that was their event. That was their test run essentially. They right. wanted to see they wanted to make sure that they would have good reception. And um for some reason they thought the best way to do that was to go play a bunch of shows in South Korea for the USO. I don't know why you'd have to ask their tour manager, Danny Stanton for more details on that. I have no idea. Um, But anyway, they went away for two weeks and that was the longest time at that stage that I had ever been away from my father. I remember waving goodbye to him as he got into his taxi to go to the airport and i was like a little traumatized um were there tears or i don't remember tears i had so he got hair extensions a few days before he left and so i was largely mortified um i told him he wasn't allowed to pick me up from school anymore or walk me to school um i was completely embarrassed mortified yeah totally just i mean yeah it looked ridiculous i mean it really because they did their whole they for the first chunk of their touring life back together they had makeup and costumes they really went like the whole hog nostalgia route and uh i thought he looked fucking ridiculous um and like little nine-year-old me was like no no i'm not i'm not associating myself with you but but nonetheless i was totally traumatized that my dad up and left for a couple weeks and this is obviously before is it before mobiles or did no they had no there were things like facetime and right anything like that like we had mobiles but it was only like the crappy ones that where you had like snake on it Mm -hmm. and just text and call text and call and snake um (laughs) or snake two or or snake two fancy um yeah so i can't actually remember how we communicated while he was there i'm not sure that i'm not sure that we did actually um it was yeah it was a really really weird time and then they got back and the ball started rolling and like you said yeah my life flipped upside down my parents were separated and all of a sudden i had a rock star for a dad super fucking weird (laughs) um and uh and then it's they, quite the childhood, Sam. Yeah, it was strange. All things considered. Yeah. And then they, and then, you know, away they went. Every summer they were out on the road playing these massive festivals, Sweden Rock, Sweden Rock, Vakken, um, all around Europe, uh, some, some in the US. Um, and for the first couple of years, I largely just heard about it. Um, I didn't really see it with my own eyes. I went to so again this is all only in the summer and i got shipped off to summer camp for a couple summers there this is the big thing to do for 
um, kids in the northeast of the United States is to go away to sleepaway camp for seven weeks every summer. Whilst the parents sort of... Right, just do their thing. Do their thing. And most kids love it. I fucking hated it. It was like my dad calls the collection of letters that I sent him from sleepaway camp letters from Abu Ghraib prison. Mm-hmm. Um, I was like, I want to come home. I want to come home. Yeah. Begging to be busted out of there. My anxiety was like off the charts. And meanwhile, he was sending me all his tour credentials from all these awesome festivals he was going to. I was like, great. Fuck you. Um, so finally, after two summers, got him to got both my parents to agree that they wouldn't send me back to camp. But what was the alternative? I mean, what the fuck else were they going to do with me? So is I, your mom still living in New York at this? Still point? living in New York at this time, but with a really heavy duty job. Mm-hmm. Um, was at that at this time being maneuvered into an executive position had even less time. Um, and then also having a relationship with a guy over here in the UK. So like really, you know, really split. Did your parents meet through the music industry? Is they that did. How, that's how they met. That's yeah. how they met. Um, my mother was the, at the time the PA to the head of Warner Chapel Music Publishing. They shared an office with Phil Carson. Phil Carson signed Twisted Sister over here. And my mom's best friend worked for Phil um, and had to go to all these metal gigs and would bring my mother as her, as her wingman. Um, and you were saying to me earlier, she's like, not into metal, not a metal head. Okay. Janice Brock told me to make this abundantly clear on this podcast. She is not a headbanger and never has been. She was a goth. She went to clubs in Camden. She was real into like the cure. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, yeah, all those not metal (laughs) categorically absolutely not um phil carson called her morticia because she had long black hair down her ass and she wore all black and would sit behind her desk in warner chapel just looking fucking intimidating af to anyone who walked in that office because she was sick and tired of trying of guys in metal bands trying to pick her up so she just looked pissed off all the fucking time like resting bitch face times 100 that was my mom did she raise you to not take shit in that regard absolutely yeah Yeah. like my balls come from my mother (laughs) yeah (laughs) how does your dad feel about that does he accept that oh yeah like he's just the way it is yeah (laughs) um yeah so uh she went her her friend she had met my dad by the way before she went to a twisted gig but she thought he was their tour manager because he came into the office totally not dressed like a guy in a band he had long hair but like it was the 80s so did everybody it was 1984 um was your dad kind of the key managerial figure early on for a long time yes yeah um he really took the reins of the band called the shots and i mean well this might be disputed sorry guys i don't want to start any fights but um yeah he he uh was like it was kind of his band he was the head bitch in charge yes um so he would come in for all these office meetings dressed as a businessman really not like a guy in a band so my mother was a little bit bamboozled there and then went to a twisted gig with her friend her friend dumped her off on the first person she saw as they walked through the stage door that happened to be my father my mother at this point realized that my father was actually in the band she's like you motherfucker and then the rest is history um 
they didn't actually get together at that point. It was like a longer um, process, but that was yeah, when they first work met. At it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that was when they first met. Uh, by the time my mother moved over to the to the U.S., to New York, to live with my dad, the band had already broken up. They'd broken up the previous year. So she moved over in 1989. Um, so anyway, yeah. So uh, she fast forward to Twisted beginning to tour again. She was, uh, my mother was like, finally getting the executive position that she had been vying for. Um, they were split. My dad had this crazy touring schedule and they had a kid who didn't want to go to summer camp like every other fucking kid in New York City. So like they had, they were stuck with like the one high maintenance ass kid who wouldn't just shut up and go. Um, so they found a summer school program for me. You don't have any brothers or sisters, I'm, I'm an only, yeah. yeah. They found a summer school program for me at Oxford where I could live my true nerdy life and study Shakespeare for three and a half weeks. But then the rest of the three months of the summer vacation, I had nothing to do. And so that is how I ended up touring with Twisted Sister from the age of 12. Every summer? Every summer. Were they on the summer. road every year? Yes, they were on the road every summer and I was always right there with them. Yeah. So originally just from, from that age, just on either end of the summer school program that I went to, I did that for three summers. And then after that, it was full time the whole summer. Um, my dad kind of like informally recruited me into his crew. He made his guitar (laughs) tech teach me how to change strings. So he put you to work. He put me to work. And did you relish that and enjoy that? So it was kind of as a joke, right? So my first, my first summer really being out with them when I was 15, he said, all right, well, you can spend the whole summer with us, but you're not getting a fucking free ride. So he told Danny, their tour manager, to put me to work. And apparently it was like a joke, but then, and I thought it was a joke. And then the first morning of the tour, my phone in my room rang at 5.30 a.m. And it's Danny going like, where the fuck are you? Lobby call was 15 minutes ago. I like fell out of my bed. I was like, ah, fuck. So I like ran downstairs and um, went out with them and like, apparently I didn't really have to, but I was terrified into doing it. Um, but then I loved it. It was, it was great. Um, I would spend all day at these festival grounds. We'd get there really early. We'd like set up our rig, make sure that like we had the lay of the land, that everything was exactly how the band would want it. They wouldn't get there until way, way later, like at least 12 hours after we had gotten there. Um, and then we'd spend the rest of the day kind of just fucking around, <laughs> like napping in the in the dressing rooms or um, watching the other bands. Now, were you into all the bands that were on these bills at that time? Were you enjoying the other bands? I used to Did love you find yourself enjoying it more. As I time used went on? to love going out to watch them. I used to like. I used to find it really, really fascinating standing on the side of the stage in that atmosphere, as you know is like it's kind of mesmerizing i don't just like watching the bands i love watching the crowds Mm -hmm. i love watching like how fucking hyped people get it was it's never really fully been my scene i can appreciate it but i've never entirely loved that music and we're not going to get into the music that i do love because everyone's going to take the piss out of me big time just pop divas I have seen Taylor Swift live. Taylor Swift rules. I fucking loved every second of it. There's no shame like, in Taylor Swift. I came so close to crying. It was like amazing. <laughs> um, 
the first concert that I was ever like willingly at, yeah, yeah, like yeah, that yeah. I yeah. asked to go to, was the Spice Girls. There you go. That was the first yeah. album I bought. Was the debut Spice Girls? Fuck album. yeah! So actually, it was Thriller by Michael Jackson. But okay, and then second was Spice Girls. A strong choice. Yeah. So yeah, look, I super appreciate rock and metal. Um, my dad raised me on the Beatles. I am a total Beatles nerd. Can talk about them all day, every day. Um, my mother raised me on Queen. Again, same. Um, but yeah, I do like like Katy Perry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> hey, you like what you like. To this. Yeah, but anyway, it was never totally my scene. But I found it so amazing watching these bands from the side of the stage, watching what they do and watching the crowds. I always found it fascinating watching the people in the front row who were so fucking dedicated. They would stand there all fucking day like when do they pee i would like literally i've always st- thought that i would stand just there just being cup, like perhaps i don't know i would stand there on the side of the stage just being like just watching the same people just like oh surely they'll leave after this band or they'll leave after this bit nope just be like wanting to scream at them when do you go to the bathroom um i don't mind the, the shit that you the think people about that do that but what i really dislike is the people that go to the front right and then they just like eyeball and look miserable and angry at yeah. all the support bands. Like, yeah. if you want to get there early and get to the front, that's fine. But then don't just give cold Show some stares. respect and some support. Because, you know, as a DJ, when I'm warming up for bands, I see it a lot. But then I can understand if it's me. But when then I see, like, the first band go on and they're still just like, Ugh. and it's like, yeah. come on. There's nothing more yeah. disheartening than when you're on stage and you look down and there's yeah. just, like, someone with their arms folded looking yeah. really bored. I love I love watching the characters that are always towards the front of festivals. There there's always I mean you you can't just be like normal t-shirt and jeans no you can't just be like normal and nondescript like you got to be like fucking losing your damn mind or like looking really pissed off i used to like make backstories for people so if you're listening to this and you were ever in the front couple of rows at any of my dad's shows these festivals i probably made a really detailed biography of like your entire life in my head um what are twisted sister fans like on the whole do they have a specific type of fan or is it just a crazy i don't think so i I saw saw them run the gamut. I mean, you would have people who obviously loved them since way back in the day. Um, Plenty of of people who kind of are their age now, but look like someone hit the pause button on them in 1987 and they just like never changed. Um, You have people who, again, like them back in the day, but have kind of like moved on with the times but then go to see them and like light up again because it's their youth like reforming in front of their eyes and they get so excited by it and then you've got really young people my age or or younger like like millennials gen z or whatever the fuck we're calling them now um so you do find that you do find yeah. that there's always new waves there's of, always new there's always new waves of them especially in in northern europe um i remember we were at this one show in Sweden and it was a rare it was a rare occurrence because it was winter it was like Christmas time and they agreed to play a show in Sweden I went over with them and there was this kid in the front row he was younger than me and he was like crying the entire show I I I mean I was like I'm so glad that my dad's music brings you such joy I don't know why but like (laughs) 
I was standing at the side of the stage with um, Raquel, who is Mark Mendoza's biological niece. I'm his non-biological niece. She is his biological niece. Um, and uh, we have always, when, when Raquel and I were very young, we were intensely confused as to how we were not actual sisters because my father was, um, in the early 1980s, married to her mother, to Mendoza's sister. So we knew that her mom and my dad had been married, but somehow we were not siblings, but we're very, very close in age. So our joke, obviously, we worked it out after a little while, but our joke as we've got older is that like we're like sisters from other misters, you know, um, we're standing at the side of the stage and we're watching this kid and we're like, what the fuck? I mean, like, so, so glad for him. It was very touching, but couldn't work out why he was getting so worked up. But then another great joy of of being in our position is that you could see these audience members. And then at the end of shows, one of my little jobs was I would tear off the set list and I would get AJ's drumsticks that he'd discarded all over the place or the extra guitar picks. And I would give them to security in the little pit area and direct them who to give the stuff to. Um, I never liked throwing things out because I was always really afraid of hurting somebody. Yeah. And then um, like, if the person catches it, it's like everyone's on them. Yeah, exactly. Starting like I don't, right I don't center. like, I never liked that. I always felt very like bad about doing that. So um, yeah, the weird thing that people like is there's... What was the characteristics that made you choose a person? Was it the, just how like, much they were into it? Yeah, how much they were into it. Um, sometimes I like... I kind of milked it after a show where like they would see that I had stuff in my hand. I'm like, all right, let me hear it. Like, yeah, like who really wants it, it, you know? Um, Yeah, but... If I if I identified anyone in the front few rows during a during a show that was obviously so fucking into it, especially if it was a kid, I would absolutely try to get it to that person. Um, So I I would I as much as possible would go out of my way to target those people. Um, Anyway, we uh, basically gave everything from this show to this one kid. Um, like he got drumsticks. The yeah, the yeah, crier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He got the drumsticks. He got the guitar picks. He got a set list. He may have got a sweaty towel. <laughs> That's why the fuck do people know, want right? those sweaty towels? It's so weird. I was like, or I like remember a used water bottle. Yeah, I remember There's like a lot of freaks out there. One of my first shows. <laughs> one of my first shows. I was um that summer that I was fifteen. I was about to take all their sweaty used washcloths off the stage and one of their roadies was like, no, 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 throw them out. They want them. And I'm like, what the fuck? Like, are you serious? But yeah, like, I mean, I don't want to know what kind of shrines you sick motherfuckers make with those. I Please don't tell us in the comments. I have no interest in what you've done with those washcloths. It concerns me. I'm just saying maybe evaluate your priorities. But um yeah we gave everything to this one kid and like if he hadn't been crying before holy fucking shit i mean like he lost it and it was just it's like adorable i don't maybe that's the wrong word i don't want to feel like i don't if he ever listens to this i don't want him to feel like i'm like condescending condescending or making fun it's it's really beautiful to see someone touch so much as you say by yeah by someone's by a a performance and by music i mean to me 
Twisted's music has always been in the background of my life. It's always been a kind of soundtrack, you know, it's been playing somewhere out there. And um, it's been responsible for a lot of great things in my life. Because of it, I've had incredible experiences and been to amazing places. And, you know, I like make this kind of joke, but not really regularly that it like paid my way through university. So thank you guys so much. Um, But uh, to, to thousands and thousands and thousands of other people, it is so much more. And uh, I've never, I've never lost sight of of that fact, and that really I have to be grateful for that because um, all these experiences that I got to have are are down to the fact that even though I think it's a little cheesy and I think it's a little funny, and uh, you know I like used to make fun of my dad for being a geriatric rock star, that so many other people are actually have been really deeply affected by it and i think that's amazing um i think they're obviously very aware of the the campness as well and they yeah you know, celebrate that side to it as well because there's some bands that take themselves so deadly seriously yeah but then you think well come on mate and i love what twisted do is they are aware of the absurdity of heavy metal music and they yeah. fully like raise that flag high and absolutely yeah and uh they they know that that their fans come out to watch a show. Mm-hmm. They're very aware of that. They're an unstoppable live band. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days, you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. What was the reason why they called time? Was it just they figured, let's go out with a bang, it's 40 years? Was AJ's passing a part of it? Yeah, so um, so AJ passed away in 2015. Um, and it's still hard to talk about. Um I loved him very much. Um, he was out with another band. He suffered a cardiac arrest on their tour bus and they couldn't wake him up. Um, and 
from the moment that I got that phone call, I knew that we were coming towards the end. And I was grateful for that, actually, because um, for, for a number of reasons, one, Twisted had always prided themselves on having the original lineup, right? There are so many of these 80s nostalgia bands out on the road now where you've got replaceable kind of thing. one yeah. original member and they're really kind of just a tribute act to themselves. Twisted was the real deal. And that was a major part of their pull. And that was why they were so phenomenal to watch. Because, and respected. Yeah, they were a well-oiled machine. They went out. It didn't matter what the circumstances were, how jet-lagged or exhausted they were. They could go out there and deliver a flawless show every single time because it was the five of them as it had been for so long. Thousands of shows, right? Thousands. Yeah. Over 9,000 shows. 9,000. 9,000 that Twisted Sister had played. Now, they hadn't been all five of them for all 9,000 shows. In the first few years, there were a number of lineup changes, and AJ was the last of the of the five known members to join the lineup. But yes, Twisted Sister played over 9,000 shows. They were, I mean... And you obviously got to see behind the scenes firsthand the the work that went into the the presentation yeah. of the show and everything around it. Yeah, they they you just wound them up and watched them go, you know, um, and I knew that that was going to be very difficult to replicate with one of them missing, um, especially with AJ's drumming style being so unique and his solos being a massive hallmark of their shows he always did a solo after burn in hell um he had these like light up drumsticks um where the tips slid up and yeah he would just lose his fucking mind and um it was an amazing thing to watch um so i i knew that they wouldn't be able to replicate that um and also i they they recognized that if they were going to stop, it was a good time because they were at the top of their game. They were headlining all the biggest festivals in the world. Um, and, you know, why why go out with a fizzle when you go out with a bang? Why let that balloon slowly deflate? You watch the numbers start drop. Right. Yeah. You start playing earlier and earlier. Why do that, you know, when you could have one perfect summer of headlining all the biggest festivals and do that almighty mic drop and walk out with your head held high. So that was the way they decided to go out. And I was devastated. It was massively the end of an era. At that point, I had stopped being out with them for the entire summer I was grown up. I was at university. I had my boyfriend, who's now my husband. Um, but I always joined them for at least a few shows. Um, I was so pleased I got to see that Bloodstock show. Yeah. It was phenomenal. Yeah. They're great. Um, and so it, it was just the right moment. Um, and also, I mean, like, they're, you know... 
I don't, how do I say, how do I say this delicately without any of them getting mad at me? They're not going to stay that energetic forever. You know, they're all already getting older. It's like a fact of life. And so you don't want to be fucking Keith Richards, like walking around like a robot on the stage where it looks like someone may actually be controlling a generator that's like making your legs go, you know? It's pretty amazing that he's still doing it though, him and Mick. I mean, it's, 50 years it's impressive as fuck. Don't get me wrong, but like, it's not what I wanted for my father. Yeah. You know? Well, there comes a point in time where you're kind of putting yourself at risk, yeah. right? You're putting your health at risk. Absolutely. And, uh, and I, and after, you look at Ozzy, Ozzy's a classic example yeah. of like the amount of times he's had to cancel tours and then yeah. they keep just, yeah, we're going to postpone. It's like, and, just let the guy retire. Maybe. And after the way that we lost AJ, I couldn't, couldn't get that phone call about any of the other guys, you know, I couldn't, um, didn't want to imagine that it was that was one phone call too many so um i'm glad that it stopped when it did but it was sad and it was hard to watch that last summer every gig was amazing i went back out with them for the whole thing um i i made sure that i like relished every moment of it that I made all the memories that I could I knew that I didn't have to do the crew thing anymore but I got up at 5 30 a.m and I went out and I did it because I knew it was going to be the last time it was going to be my last chance um and uh I'm so glad that I did that but every single show had that tinge of of sadness yeah that you know this is going to be the last um the last Vakken, the last Sweden Rock, the last Hellfest. Um, the very definition of bittersweet, right? Absolutely. The last Grass Pop. I mean, and everyone was so fun and amazing to watch. Uh, and those are, uh, yeah, those are memories that I, I will always have and cherish and I'm so, I'm so grateful for. Um, but yeah, I think... There are a lot of factors that went into why it ended, but overall it was just the right time. And I think it was the right time for, I mean, look, not all of them were totally keen for it to end, right? Some more so than others. D is now out touring with solo, um, solo work and is having a great time and decided that's what he wanted to do. Um, I guess a character like D is kind of married to the stage right yeah i mean He's what a... else what else is he gonna do <laughs> i don't fucking know um but uh yeah so um has your dad retired from touring completely completely then? yeah he and was, he's happy with that is he yes content he, and... he was one of the ones for whom he was done he keeps saying to me I have no desire to pick up a guitar and go on stage again. Wow. So not and even like not touring, just zero shows. Zero. I mean, he's played a couple times. There's a club in Midtown Manhattan called the Iridium. And he's got a friend, Joel Hoekstra, who uh, is um, in Night Train at the moment, I think. Um, also originally, uh, not originally, but I mean, was the original guitar player in uh, the stage show Rock of Ages <laughs> when it 
premiered on Broadway. Um, Joel's an amazing guitar player, and he plays a lot at the Iridium and invites various guys that he knows to come down and play with him. And so he's invited my dad down a couple times, and my dad's gone along, and they just have fun. Yeah, yeah. Um, my dad is really, is, uh, at his heart, a blues player. Um, that's what he grew up with. That's how he taught himself. Um, he taught himself when he was a teenager and on the younger side of being a teenager and had, um, a glandular fever and was home from school for like months and had nothing else to do, but teach himself to play guitar. Um, and at the time, you know, this was in the sixties and, uh, blues was huge and that's what, that's what he taught himself to play. So he'll play some blues songs and just mess around and have a great time. But in terms of actually putting on a show, no, he doesn't want to. And uh, do you think he'd do like a solo blues album or anything like that? No, I don't. No? I don't think so. I mean, he's he's been out in Nashville quite a few times. and I know he's like tried his hand at kind of bluesy country songwriting a little bit. Whether that ever gets shown to the rest of the world. I wouldn't hold your breath, guys. Um, <laughs> I I haven't actually heard it for myself. I'm I'm like he's an amazing blues guitarist. I don't know, but um, I yeah he's he's just enjoying like some well on downtime. Yeah, yeah, fuck yeah. He's like been going to Bermuda and hanging out with his friends there. He's is your dad remarried? No? Yes, yeah. he's remarried to my stepmom Sharon. Um, they uh, still live in the apartment that he grew up in, that I grew up in on the Upper West Side. This is the apartment in these photos here. Yeah. Um, that. Uh, so my bedroom growing up was his bedroom growing up. Um, that's now all completely fucked now because they've just totally got renovated the apartment. So the whole layout is like messed up and everything's topsy-turvy and weird. But um, yeah, it, so it was very much like our family home. He's That's really been, rare, isn't it? Yeah, he's been in that building for 60 years. So you never went and got the Rockstar Mansion? Or no, absolutely not. Because he had, and this is like the holy grail. Any New Yorkers who listen to this will know, he had rent control. You don't walk out on rent control, man, because it basically stops your rent being increased that much. So, you know, so was he people, paying like 1960s rent? I have no idea, actually. <laughs> but, but fucking cheap. Yeah, for a yeah. three-bedroom apartment in our neighborhood, like fucking cheap. So you don't walk out on that shit. He now, he and my stepmom now own it. Um, and so they got renovated it and kind of updated it because it still, it was very much still like his parents' apartment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, just a little weird. Um, but yeah, uh, he talks a good game occasionally of like selling it and moving to Bermuda or moving to Nashville. And I officially will go on the record and call bullshit. Um, is he a New Yorker through and through? He's a dad? New Yorker through and through. He is the mayor of the Upper West Side. He is the president of our building. I, like de facto, everyone just thinks like he's the dude in our fucking building. And the only way he is leaving that apartment permanently is in a fucking body bag. Like I'm going on record and saying it. I, if uh, if he proves me wrong, I will forever be astounded. <laughs> um, yeah, he is, he is a New Yorker through and through really like, you know, I was saying about John versus JJ, JJ is the rock star who goes on tours and you know, all that shit. And John is a man of the upper West side, um, who loves sushi and Malbec wine 
and this one deli a couple blocks away from our place called Murray's where he gets his smoked salmon and kippered salmon um, most weekends he gets the new york times delivered to his doorstep and like the little things in life has makes himself coffee every morning and he's totally content with that life for now and i'm happy for him i mean fuck it's well deserved and uh yeah come december he's gonna be a grandpa he is. I didn't know whether you wanted to say it. Yeah, so uh, Fuck, there's a bun in the yeah, oven. Yeah, there's a bun in the oven. So oh, shit. Do you yourself consider yourself and identify as a New Yorker, as an American, as a transatlantic kind of Brit and an American? Um, I'm, I'm a New Yorker. Like, I'm an Upper West Sider born and bred, you know. Um, that's totally where my roots are my home is my home. Like I said earlier, I don't want to raise my child there. I don't really have a desire to move back there at this time. Um, that who knows that might change. Um, but I moved over here at 15. I lived in London for a year and then I went to boarding school in, um, uh, here in the Southeast. Um, and then I went to university. Um, I went to the university of Sussex in Brighton. Mm -hmm. Um, and now I live out in Bath, which is like the complete polar opposite of New York. It looks like a fucking museum. I live in a Catholic boarding school and dear Jesus Christ, I hope none of the staff listen to this podcast because <laughs> fuck man. Um, Are yeah. you friends with them on Facebook? You might uh, just want to hide, yeah, hide I'm just going to have to just discreetly, we're just not going to talk about it. I, <laughs> yeah, that's I think, the Catholic way, isn't it? Yeah, like, yeah, just, just <laughs> shove it under the carpet, all kinds of stuff. Yeah, um, yeah, it's, it's really weird. I'm pretty sure like none of them know about this, like, other life that mm. I so I currently how did I, you meet James how did you two meet so I was working in a um in a bar in Brighton right around the corner from his apartment right. um and yeah he uh James is my husband um and we've been together for pff, almost seven years um and when you got married two years ago got right? married two and a half years ago and he could not be more like different he so he has a phd in polish history polish um, history polish history so the the wow. history of the underground army in the second world war niche in poland super yeah, yeah. fucking niche um <laughs> he has been he had been to a couple of my dad's shows i took him to a couple of festivals uh and he loves metal like he's very very into his rock and metal um and we like bonded over a love of um led zeppelin and um he loves like nirvana he loves a lot of 90s bands pearl jam um and so finds the um the atmosphere of festivals really cool and uh was very taken aback by kind of so we had already been together for um so he wait he came to one festival before we were like really an item he just i, I, I bet that's yeah. an intimidating meet for a boyfriend is yeah not only well the he dad, wasn't so the crew to, the band they're all there fair, all judging all to ranking to be fair he wasn't a boyfriend yet at right. that time so we kind of got around that nice and then and then like the year after we were together and i like 
said to the guys, they were like, oh, you have a boyfriend yet? And I said, oh, yeah, you remember that guy who came to one of the festivals last year? And they were like, kind of like, you were like, you're dating him? Well, if I'd known then, I would have fucked him up. So this is like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. this is the thing with growing up with a metal band. It's like well, they're having all very protective 10, of you, right? Yeah. Super fucking protective. It's like having 10 dads. So can we sidestep real quick? Yeah. Did you ever experience sexism and disrespect as a young girl that's constantly on the road because obviously it's like that sort of boss's daughter scenario that no one in the crew is going to do unequivocally absolutely fucking yes um i was the youngest was it constant i was the youngest girl woman anywhere backstage at any of these festivals and a lot of the women the vast majority of the women who were backstage were um, wives, girlfriends, for want of a better term, groupies, um, some not the most modestly dressed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's there is still very much an old school attitude backstage at a lot of these festivals. And I'm sure you can corroborate yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, Women. I'm amazed at how many women still want to just be that. Yeah. Just the low cut top. I want to come backstage and hook and, up with the and that And that women are there um to not really serve any other purpose than be with the band Mm. um and not in any kind of professional capacity shall we say yeah yeah yeah. um so yeah i uh any anything from having my ass squeezed at the age of 15 to you know uh having roadies from other bands seeing me carry equipment and assume that like I shouldn't be doing that that like I was doing the wrong thing and what wasn't authorized to do what I was doing and like essentially go tell on me to our tour manager um to uh you know some guys in well-known bands whose identities I will not reveal at this time like straight up asking me for my fucking number you can or... tell me after the mics are off yeah yeah um <laughs> asking me for my like number shamelessly so as well knowing like who you shame... are no well no not knowing who I was actually and in every in every instance well for a little while, I would tell them who I was, just that they'd be really fucking mortified and embarrassed. And then I would tell my dad what had happened, just that like he'd go over there and like find them and be like really intimidating. Did he do a lot of that? Yeah, yeah. for did, sure. Did he kind of almost enjoy a bit of doing that? Yeah, like, absolutely. Being the protective. Part. But then, but then, like as I got older, kind of not wanting to lean on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. And stand and, on your own two feet, right? And, and just being like, you know what? Fuck you. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it absolutely exists. Absolutely was a thing that I kind of had to contend with, but you know what, you know, where I was saying earlier that I got my balls from my mother, she's really the person who, even though she wasn't there with me at these shows, taught me how to act and how to handle it because, so she started working in the music industry at like 19 um, in the eighties. So if I had it bad, yeah, I can only imagine like fucking hell. Some of the stories that she's told me, you know? Um, and one of the reasons why she would sit there and look so foreboding was because she had had years of defense mechanism. Yeah. yeah. Of guys and bands being assholes to her. Um, and so she really, uh, taught me like how to act and how to like tell tell these guys to like fuck off um which i i took to heart and 
and did, but you know, you have to grow a certain amount of confidence, especially like, I mean, look, guys and bands look fucking intimidating when you're, as I was at 15, what, like five foot four and like, well, and they come in packs because they come through. Yeah, exactly. So, but then conversely, you'd have the guys and twisted and the crew who were super, super protective of me, almost to the point where, again, it felt like a little bit sexist and annoying sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where, like, I, right until, like, the, right until their last tour, when I was a grown-ass woman in my mid-fucking 20s, um, they, my dad was still making me go out. If I was going to go out into a festival ground, I was not allowed to go out without a bodyguard at any point ever like and that always pissed me off and I was kind of okay to an extent I was grateful for it because due to um due to the fact that I had been touring with my dad for a little while and also the um the fundraising that my dad and I had done for my um for my illness disease whatever the fuck you want to call it um people started to know my face and so I would get bothered by people out in festival grounds. Like overzealous fans. Yeah, like a little, you know, I mean, look, you'd still have to be very, very into Twisted. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Obsessively yeah. But they're so. almost the people you want to avoid the most. Exactly. <laughs> to like, to recognize me and know who I was, but it would happen. And so on the one hand, you're kind of grateful for it. On the other, you're kind of just like, you know. You sort of feel a bit privileged and pampered and uh, and and also just like if i if i were a boy i mean look aj's kid junior came out on the road with us for a few summers he never had to go out with a fucking bodyguard he's a couple years older than me but by the last tour i was older than junior was when he was out with us and he never had to go out with anybody so it just felt very double standard yeah perhaps, so. absolutely but it's the kind of <sighs> It's the kind of thing where it's a necessary evil because yes, it's a double standard, but it exists. And so you kind of have to just accept it. And and just, you know, as a father, you're obviously going to be absolutely mortified if you yeah. know that you could have prevented something right. terrible happening to you. Right. So, um, and I mean, like there were times as a teenager where I'd like try to be a little dick and like sneak out by myself, <laughs> and, you know, just to be Give like, the eh, yeah, like I'll show you. Um, but uh, never proved to be a good idea. Mm, right. Because, uh, yeah, fe- festivals. Um, and also if you're seen with credentials around your neck, people will try to like snatch them off you. So I learned to always zip them up inside my jacket or tie them around my, um, my belt loop and then put them in my pocket. You know, you learn all these things to like stop drunk fans. Like what's that? Where does that get me? Yeah, 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 exactly. So, um, yeah, it was, it is a weird environment. It was a kind of like I was, I have been, brought up a proud feminist and it's a word that I don't consider dirty and it's a term that I'm I'm very glad to call myself and um I there were many many moments on the road where I had to swallow that pride and kind of accept that 
I hope the standard changes at some point, but it's not going to change now. So I, I've got to kind of accept the help. Do you know what? Just as a man from the outside looking in, I really think that it's so much down to the way mothers raise their daughters to respect themselves. Yeah. Like your mum did with you. Because when I look at these girls who come backstage and are basically just offering themselves up to these musicians, I'm like, what kind of a person has raised you to have such little self-respect for yourself? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? That you're just willing to do whatever just because this guy is on the platform of some yeah. success or fame. And I always, look... I, I try not to judge. I try to give the benefit of the doubt. Who knows like what, what any of these women's stories are, what led them to that. It's difficult to see past the non-existent mini skirts mm-hmm. and, you know, the fact that they basically are just wearing a bra as a shirt. Um, but like, who, who knows? I like she, she may be fully empowered in her choices and just loves sex and is wearing that because she likes it and i really really hope that's the case but i was never gonna let myself be that kind of toy Mm -hmm. um and uh but it was difficult to not feel at times like i was being looked at like that anyway you know it would always change when my dad arrived and these people from other bands would like see him hugging me and be like oh shit that's jj's daughter that's what she's fucking doing here (laughs) but you know we would be at the festival ground for a good 12 to 14 hours before that moment happened many of the bands would have left by then so like and it's just it's annoying and heartbreaking isn't it that that's the thing that makes them stop it's like oh that's yeah exactly that guy's like, daughter we shouldn't oh, be doing so this not just we now, shouldn't be doing this because right like now she's a you human being. now you fucking respect me because <laughs> yeah. my dad showed up like yeah. uh-oh he's the fucking headlight you know like ugh, fuck you it's yeah it's it's exhausting and my mother um having having worked her whole career in the exact side of things has constantly had to fight against the tide of the boys club yeah i'll bet um and has always had to prove her i mean she started as a pa you know like treated like dirt and um forced to just basically run errands and do these menial ass tasks and um worked her way up to a position of extraordinary respect and has earned accolades and um and recognition in her own right but had to fight so much more for that than a man would have had to um the music twice as inspiring yeah absolutely but the music industry and i have seen it on both sides on the behind the scenes side and out on the stage it is a fucking boys club and yeah that sexism in in those arenas at those festivals backstage it's there it's very difficult to feel like you are a person of value when you're looking at the dancers that Steel Panthers brought with them, who are well, they don't even bring them with them, right? They're they, just people no, from right? The crowd they're people. They're people from the crowd who get up, or or girls. I've heard from a local strip club that their manager will go out and find and ask. They, I don't know <laughs> I didn't if that's see true. Any of that. I don't that know might if that happened in Vegas or something. I don't know if that's true. Somebody told me that when they need actual dancers for whatever reason, that they'll. Right. No, I didn't see yeah, any I of don't, that. Yeah, I don't know. They that, just anyway. basically pluck out the front row. Right. Or they pluck these girls out of the front row. But anyway, it's difficult when you're around, when you're in that environment to feel like you are a person of value for what you're there to do. 
Um, and you say that as someone who came to see me with Steel Panther and enjoy that band yeah. and, and Look, love the hey, show. Hey, wait, wait, wait. I fucking love Steel Panther, yeah, yeah, okay? Yeah. Like, <laughs> like I, I see them for the ironic, just stupid fun that yeah. they are. Um, you know, they are... Uh, it's it's interesting the reaction that they spark where like there are a ton of uh women who seem to take it seriously and just show them their boobs um but fine that's their choice um for me i just think that they're a lot of fun they're one of the bands that i would always if they were on the same bill with my dad i would always fucking make sure that i could go out and see them they're hilarious well, like twisted i'm not making the comparison with what they do no, but, but they, they have put the same on a show yeah the same show exactly they like they just a flawless show every right time. like they might have this um they might have this image of like oh yeah they must be like crazy fucking rock stars they get fucked up and you know but they clearly work their asses off they have a shtick that they know works and they go out and they do it every time and like i made fun of my dad once many times but one time that sticks out where uh as we were on our way to one of his shows um my friend texted me that she got us tickets to go see florence the machine i love florence the machine super excited about it and I said to my dad, oh, we got tickets to go see Florence the Machine. Super excited. And my dad's like, oh, what about me? You're about to go see me. You're not fucking excited about that. I was like, dad, I could perform your entire show for you right here, right now. You ready? <laughs> Are you ready? <laughs> Please welcome to the stage. Twisted fucking sister hello insert city name here welcome to our show and my dad's like fuck you (laughs) (laughs) but you are right (laughs) yeah but here's the thing though right that's their shtick and it works yes right you can make fun of them for it they repeat the same thing over and over again but it's their shtick they stick to it and the crowd fucking loves it. They put on a real show. They don't just go out there and play song after song with little to no passion and leave the stage and just be like, okay, we've done our job. We played our songs live. They understand that's not what it's about. That's not what the fans have come there to see. Like D fucks with the crowd. He's he the ultimate front man. Absolutely. He doesn't give a fuck, does he? He's so outspoken yeah. and so in your face. Yeah, exactly. Like I, and I have at the end of their last tour, I tallied up um, the number of shows that I had seen of theirs. And I believe it came out to about plus minus 120 um, over the years. And most of those 120 shows had started the exact same way. And uh, my dad always would do a little conversation with the audience before the fire still burns. And every single time they've got this one bit during Under the Blade, during the where they have their one little bit of choreography, which is them just rocking back and forth. They did this mostly the same thing for all 120 something of those shows. Um, but everyone was nevertheless unique 
in terms of the audience, in terms of the engagement. Um, and even though they would engage with the audience at the same times, I mean, like they would have on their set list um, underneath the times when Dee was going to take a break to speak to the audience or do some kind of interaction or fuck Those with somebody. Those beats would all be in the same place. Yeah, always in the same place. They had like, be... you know, little dotted lines underneath yeah. like every few songs. You know, that's that's where Dee's going to talk. We use that as their crew to know that that's when we could give them some water or do a string change or you know give them a towel or whatever the fuck my dad would often come off to the side of the stage and like sit on an amp for a minute you know um and uh so even though with all that kind of pre-manufactured all those pre-manufactured um aspects they still came out with a unique show that engaged with the audience differently every single time and that was like the beauty of it like i said before they were a well-oiled machine they knew exactly what they were fucking doing and i think that's why even though maybe like in the grand scheme of the great heavy metal bands of all time they may not rank way up there right like and they'll admit that too they would still get those headlining slots because no one knew how to work a crowd like they could and you wouldn't want to follow twisted sister would you no fuck no (laughs) their their motto um uh was burn the piano and i'm going to attempt to I'm going to attempt to explain it as best I can. And then this is going to be included in the text essay that my dad writes me to correct me on everything that I got wrong. But um, Jerry Lee Lewis. Yeah. Yeah. The killer. The killer uh, would set his piano on fire during his set. Um, And that's like, you know, that was like his big moment and how he'd like the showstopper showstopper blow the crowd away and no one physically no one could follow that because it would be like a fire hazard but also he would leave the he would be so remarkable and go out with such a bang that you just couldn't follow it and that was their ethos that was their um that was their mission statement was burn the piano make it so that if you if they did have someone following them they would be really fucking sorry. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Even if that name was a huge name, you know? Um, And so that's, that's how they got to the top of all those bills. Um, And yeah, it was an amazing thing to watch. Um, My, yeah, I learned a massive deal of my work ethic from my father and I do not intend to go into music um whatsoever I am working towards a master in law um how's that going law um slow (laughs) there's so much fucking reading um yeah are you still doing your yoga classes as well yes yes teaching yoga studying for law you're about to be a mom yeah there's a lot going on I live in a catholic boarding school um i guess you've got nothing but time on your hands right yeah i know right (laughs) it's just abundant uh yeah i have a dog named dave he takes up a lot of my time um and you know my husband just man james is there too too. he's present yeah so i'm working towards a master's in law i eventually um i would like to qualify as a barrister way down the line i would love to move back to the u.s and run for congress because i think that we really 
really need more female representation on Capitol Hill. I noticed that you're very engaged online with yes. with America's politics yes. in particular. That's yeah. obviously something you're very passionate about. Massively so. Um, my family is a very political one. My dad's mother, the one who got him to swallow that cotton ball before he went down for his uh, draft ex- um, physical, uh, she was the campaign manager for the first black female senator for the United States, Constance Baker Motley. And she also worked on JFK's campaign. Um, And she was a very, very um, political, politically aware person, an extremely intelligent woman, um, and uh, happened to be a member of the Communist Party at one time. And so that I, I think I've never actually asked about this, but I would imagine that would have precluded her from ever attempting to run herself um, because she left the party. I think I think she left the party. I don't think she died of communist. Ooh, that I might be getting myself into dangerous territory here. Um, and also, if the, this will get dug up during any campaign that I run in future if by Republicans who tell yeah, people yeah, to yeah. not vote for me because my grandmother is a communist. And to those of you who do that, I say, go suck a dick. Anyway. Um, <laughs> I love how uh, I, I, it's, it's rare and refreshing for me, right, to hang out with women who swear more than me. And I, and I fucking do what I know. Like I really do. That's my dad's fault. <laughs> um, that's that's my dad's fault and the crew's fault. You can blame that on them. Like that's a major implication of uh, growing up around them, and um, that's entirely their fault. And yeah, they can um, they can answer for that. But anyway, no, I I'm fine with it. Who cares? It's like it's just, it. it's it's a seasoning for your speech. You <laughs> do you know what? Uh, your baby's going to be yet, boy or girl? Do you know? No, I don't know. Are you going to wait for the for the moment? And no, I, we will find out, will but find we're out. just not far enough along to find out yet. Um, if it's a boy, I will raise him to know a woman's worth and how to treat her. And if it's a girl, I will raise her to know that she is unstoppable and can do anything. Um, and I know that I have parents who will totally back me up in both of those and will be like the greatest role models. And I cannot wait to see my dad as a grandfather because he's going to be so attached. And I don't think I'm going to be able to kick him out of my apartment <laughs> um, to be entirely honest with you. Um, like he's so excited and it's fucking adorable. He is, yeah. He's so, it's so cute. Um, yeah. But uh, anyway, so Evelyn, um, her name was Evelyn. Uh, my dad's mother, she, uh, she was a very, um, very political person. She raised my dad and my uncle to be very politically aware. My father um, has always watched the news obsessively and has been incredibly informed about the political landscape and um, current events and has always made sure that I have been as well and has always made sure that I have had that passion in me to stand for something because I, to be honest with you, there are, there are so many people who are online being like, I don't usually talk about politics or I'm, you know, I don't want to get any, into any arguments or I, I'm not really a political person, but you know what, in this day and age, if you're not really a political person, you got to look at your priorities, man, because there's too much fucked up shit going on right now. I don't, you know, like I'm not going to say I don't care what you stand for because I think it's a very polarizing moment. But stand moment. for something or you'll but fall for anything. Exactly. Right, stand for phrase. something. I love the musical Hamilton like with my whole heart. I have seen it three times and I've been listening to it. Um, here's a fun fact for you. 
I listen to the Hamilton soundtrack on long drive. So after this, when I'm driving back to Bath, I will be listening to it in the car to keep myself alert because I rap very aggressively along to all the songs. <laughs> I am a great rapper and none of you, you are ever going to have delivery. None of you are ever going to have any evidence of this. I'm just going <laughs> to say it and you're going to have to accept it because no one is ever going to catch this on videotape. The only people who have seen it for themselves are my husband and my best friend, Vicky. And, and they take it to the grave. They, t- they will. <laughs> take it to the grave um yeah but anyway uh one of the lines in hamilton uh alexander hamilton who was the first secretary of the treasury of the united states of america says to aaron burr who was uh eventually the third vice president um but before that was a senator uh fought in the revolutionary war and was a frenemy of hamilton's until he eventually shot hamilton in, in a duel um Hamilton says to Burr, if you stand for nothing, Burr, what will you fall for? Because Burr spends the entire narrative of the show not really taking a stand for anything. Um, and uh, and I, I, that's, that is an ethos that I completely agree with. If you stand for nothing, what will you fall for? If you, if, if you turn a blind eye, if you bury your head in the sand, if you say that you don't really have an opinion on what's going on right now, on the fact that Alabama has essentially just made abortion illegal. And the only reason that they're doing this is to get it all the way up to the Supreme Court so that the Supreme Court can overturn Roe versus Wade because they see this as their moment because it is, an, it is a majority conservative Supreme Court. And so if it's ever going to happen, it's now. Um, if, if you don't have an opinion on that, I... I don't know what to say to you. I have more to say to you if you, uh, I have, I'd almost have more respect for you if you had an opinion that completely disagreed with mine. At least we could have a conversation. Um, but uh, yeah, Evelyn's legacy, and I never met her. She passed away when my dad was 20 something. Um, before Twisted made it big. Um, but she, uh, her, her legacy and what she stood for, um, is a major influence in my life. Um, and, uh, so much of what I want to do is in tribute to her and, and what I think she would have wanted to achieve if she could have, um, lived to see this era. We've seen incredible things happen and, well, incredible things in, in both senses of the word. Good and bad, right? Good and bad. Um, and uh, and it's a weird time to be alive. But it, it is. But, but if you're, I feel very strongly that we have a responsibility as people who are alive in this day and age to take a stand and do something. Because I uh, just tweet about it, not just tweet about yeah. it. I get very angry on social media occasionally. I've actually deleted the Facebook app from my phone um, because it's not constructive, but I still occasionally will go on like these rants. Um, but that <laughs> ranting on Facebook, ranting on Twitter, it's not going to change anything. You don't do anything. No. You don't make a difference. You make a difference by joining a, a political party. You make a difference by um, 
going to a local grassroots organization and helping them. You you make a difference by volunteering at a phone bank, by handing out some flyers, no matter how many disaffected people walk past you and tell you to fuck off. You make a difference by actually getting out there and making your voice heard um like that incredible girl Greta Thunberg is doing who's amazing right unbelievable like a superhero what a a fucking badass you know what she's a real life superhero she's a real rock star yeah she's a real rock star there are so many people and my dad will say now that there are no real rock stars left not in music not in music but I think that that girls like her are real rock stars um and so I, I don't want to be a, a music rock star, but I would like to be a rock star in a different way. So, yeah. Keeping that family business going. Yeah, exactly. In, in my own, in my own sense of the term. Yeah. This has been amazing. I'm so glad. <laughs> Guess how long we talked for. Oh, a fucking Like two age. hours. Jesus Incredible. Christ. I'm so sorry. Oh no, my it's God. been amazing. Sam, thank you so much. Oh, loved thank it. you for having You're me. You're a great talker. Uh, yeah, I get that you from do, my you've dad. Got, you've got a career in politics. I can see it. I, I get that from my father. And law. Yeah, yeah. we'll see. I, yeah. <laughs> Did you enjoy it? Is it nice to chat about Yeah, stuff? it was. I mean, like, it's really weird. Yeah, I, I'm not surprised that two hours have gone by. I never fucking shut up. My husband will be the first person <laughs> to tell you that. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, so... um yeah but thank you for having me my I'm, pleasure i'm sorry you're gonna have to like edit down all this i don't shit edit at I all talk. i don't oh, edit at fuck. all i just i'm put it so out it sorry you guys who are like gonna have to listen to me talk for two if you've made it this far like well fucking done do you know what though like at the moment i'm trying to mix up the guests that i have on and it's not necessarily for me now about just like the most famous people that are going to draw in loads of listens i feel like i'm at a point now where i've got a solid audience and we can afford to just get different perspectives and i knew that yeah. you'd have a lot to say about not just just your musical experiences but also you know life experiences well i'm so I'm thank you for imparting some you, knowledge i'm glad you listen to me talk a bunch of shit for this fucking <laughs> long put out there and all the best with the next few months thank and the, the so baby carry in yeah that's it's already exhausting i don't know when this pregnancy glow shows up i call bullshit personally <laughs> i think like any any of any women listening to this who have yet to have a baby it's a lie it's a dirty fucking lie i'm a, i'm tired all the time i cry if i don't get to have a nap i'm like a toddler it's ridiculous um and i look like hell so you look great you look fine oh thank you the picture that is going to be used for the cover of this episode is not a representation of how i look right now well i'm going to take a picture of this here this is a graduation photo of you and your father this is spectacular yeah go for it we'll have to use that yeah Um, sam thanks again thanks so much thank you so much matt Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.